0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by New York Mutual Trading.
1: Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Food photography is a marvel. Beautiful photos make me want to own the book, cook the dish, visit the restaurant, travel to the source, But how do you become a great food photographer? Our guest today is Michael Piazza, a very celebrated food photographer. You may not know his name yet, but you've been looking at his art for years in cookbooks, magazines, websites, posters, and advertisements. Mike will tell us how he became a food photographer and why at the end of the day, beautiful food photography is all about finding the light.
2: I was involved in photography and had been doing photography, assisting photographers for years and years and years. I moved to New York City from San Francisco in 2000. I had the fortune of working for a really famous big photographer in New York City. And he shot a lot for Rolling Stone magazine and just on and on and on. And so a lot of musicians and rock star musicians. I had been shooting a lot of music. I was into jazz and it was a world that I kind of fell into because I like to take pictures and I like to listen to jazz music. My early time in New York and and being around all these people, that whole world of celebrity, it was a little crazy. I sort of fell out of love with all of that, or I had a trouble imagining keep scuffling away. Eventually, you sort of reach the top of the hill. And this is the top of the hill. I don't know that I want to be on top of this hill. So I was kind of having like a little creative crisis, I guess. A good friend of mine from San Francisco had sort of recently moved out and had no place to stay for a while and was kind of flopping on my floor in Brooklyn and- um, Of course it's Brooklyn. <laughs> we got drinking wine in Brooklyn. And, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Um, we were sitting around drinking wine and eating and whatever we were doing. And I was kind of whining about, wasn't sure what I was doing or where I was going or what it all meant. In his great British accent, he, he said, you know, Mikey, you, you love photography and you love food. Why don't you do food photography? And it was like head exploding the simplest things, really. <laughs> but it had never crossed my mind. I guess I'm, you know, probably not that smart or something. It was sort of like a moment. It didn't happen overnight. I really changed sort of my trajectory at that point and really just kind of walked away from music, things, and and musicians and all that. I still love music and I still love music photography and all of that. But I I probably got a little bit closer to my real calling or heart or something doing food photography. So that was kind of how it happened.
1: Did you study art? Did you, because you do so many still lives that are so beautiful.
2: I did actually. This is like a theme in my life, I guess. I was at school in California at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and had in my mind that I was going to study business or something and become rich and, you know, what have you. And they didn't have a business school per se. They had an econ department that seemed close enough, six of one half a in the other. And somewhere in my sophomore year, I just bombed out of that. I mean, it was, I went down in spectacular fashion. <laughs> and I, again, <laughs> at a moment, my father was listening to me at that point. He said, Michael, what are you doing? It was actually, what the hell are you doing? My answer was, I, I don't know, dad. I really don't know. I, he said, well, why don't you just study something you love and don't worry about whatever other existential questions you think you're trying to answer. I've always loved history. And so I took this great history class with this really sweet man. And he had a good friend who taught in the art history department. He got me into this art history class with this professor. And that was that. Once I started doing that, there was no turning back. So I wound up studying art history and getting an art history degree there. I studied film at the San Francisco State Graduate Film School for a hot second, sort of a couple of years after that. I was probably done with education for a while. But it's all in there and it comes comes back around. So, But yeah, I did, I studied art history.
1: Because your pictures aren't just pictures of food, they're compositions of food. And we'll get into the portraiture you do in, in a second, but what do you think about when you're putting together a food picture? Everybody and their brother thinks they can take a picture of food. Everybody and their brother and their brother's cousin and everybody else going down the line. But the pictures don't sing. <laughs> What is everybody doing wrong that you're doing right?
2: I, I wouldn't sort of phrase it as you know what am what am I doing so right versus everybody else, like I'm so smart. I think we've determined I'm not so smart. But uh, oh no no
1: no, we have determined <laughs> that you weren't good at economics. That is, that's...
2: <laughs> photography is about light at the end of the day, or at the beginning of the day, the middle of the day, all 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 of the day. Photography is about light, and I think that's probably the thing that. A lot of people don't figure out or don't figure out right away. I certainly didn't because photography is, I mean, now God, everybody has a phone and you just kind of wave it around. But back when I was a kid in the 18th century, you loaded film into cameras. And if you didn't have a Polaroid camera or something, you you had to be smart enough to know what you were doing or how to expose the film. And it was this whole big thing. There can be this very imposing mechanical part of it that I, I think you can get sort of caught up in that. You have to master that part of it. So there's no being a great photographer. You don't get a handle on that to some degree. And then there's sort of what's in the frame composition. I think people probably think about composition sort of first and foremost. Again, very important. And if you don't master it, you're not going to take great pictures. But you could have a half ass camera and have a half ass composition. And if the light is beautiful, chances are it's going to be a nice picture. Whereas conversely, if you take the great light away, all the composition and all the mechanical mastery is probably not going to help to make it a great picture. I do workshops once in a while, specifically food photography workshops. It's the thing that I really try to impress the most upon people who attend the workshop. Obviously, you have to sort of go through all the other components of it. But if you can walk away from that with the sense of how light works and what light feels like emotionally? Is it soft or is it very hard and direct? And in what circumstances is that light the prettiest? Figuring that out makes a huge, huge difference. I probably don't think about too many things sort of consciously in the front of my head when I'm working. The thing that I probably do most consciously think of from time to time if I'm having to get something right is the light.
1: Do you almost always, when you're taking pictures, use another source of light or natural light?
2: I really use artificial light a lot. It sort of was a necessity of the kind of clients that I was working with. you know. So at some point, and if you go back far enough, I shot everything in natural light, and which I think is a great place to start because once you figure out natural light, how to work with it and how to get certain emotional things out of it, then when you move to artificial light, you sort of have kind of like a baseline that you're trying to get to, Artificial light can be very, very hard to deal with. It's like, what's that thing holding a tiger by the ears or something? When you're doing a lot of editorial photography, it's fine. And in fact, probably 99% of the editorial photography that you look at, food photography, is shot with natural light.
1: When you say editorial, just not everybody understands what you mean by that.
2: Yeah, for you know, magazines is the easiest way to think about it. Food and wine and bon appetit and... Edible Boston and all that, that is by and large natural light. There, there is a little bit of a hard lighting trend right now, so maybe that's not entirely accurate. But when I, I started working with some commercial, big commercial clients years ago, you start at 8 o'clock in the morning and you shoot until 6 o'clock at night or whatever time it's dark by 3.30 or 4 o'clock, and it's just impossible to chase the light around and have it look the same eight o'clock in the morning as it does when it gets to 3.30 in the afternoon. or, And so I, I sort of had to figure out for myself, how do I make natural light myself so that I can either have consistency or I can have total control or just shift it on a dime if it needs to feel differently. Like in shooting for Edible Boston, we'll get together for a day or two to shoot a whole series of food stories. And we'll sort of decide, how does this want to feel? Does this want to feel like it's a dinner in the wintertime when maybe the light has sort of gone or it's we want it to feel darker? Or one, it wants to feel like you're in a bright kitchen and you're cooking something, baking, whatever. And we will switch from story to story to story. Sometimes the the, the changes aren't wildly dramatic, mind you, but it's just easier for me to do it and control it that way. And Then once you get in the habit of it, it's hard to... <laughs> When I do shoot things now in, in natural light, I find it frustrating that I can't control everything you know, as quickly as I like to control things. And so I wind up shooting with artificial light a lot, but not exclusively. And certainly not when I'm outside or doing portraits um, all the time, necessarily.
1: You've done huge numbers of portraits of chefs and people in food. How do you get them to relax? How do you think about it? Because sometimes... You shoot them and they're looking, they look professional, they're wearing their white jackets, and sometimes they just look like themselves. How do you decide?
2: Every situation is a little bit different. It's funny. I've taken pictures of chefs without their jackets on if they wear them, and they sort of become just like a regular human being. You wouldn't know who they are. Even though it's this kind of lame, like they're in their uniform, it sort of takes that element of of it off the table someone looks and they immediately understand what they're looking at and then you dig on to sort of maybe other things like is it are they serious are they laughing are they in the kitchen i sort of liken it to sometimes you'll see commercials with football players and they're in their uniform and it seems hokey and goofy and like you know then why is this guy sitting in? Someone's living room watching a football game in his uniform, you, you know, wouldn't do that. But you know, if you were walking down the street and a football player walked past you, you probably wouldn't recognize them, but they had their uniform on with their shoulder pads and their helmet and everything. You'd think, oh yeah, no, I, I see you on Sunday. My only rule is they're not allowed to cross their arms, which is the very first thing that all chefs want to do when they're going to get their picture taken is cross their arms.
1: Why is that? What are you supposed to do with your arms? <laughs> it's,
2: well, it's like pop psychology. What do I know? But I think it's a defense mechanism. It's like a wall or a shield or it's... And these guys and gals, I mean, they're the reason they're in the back of the house is because they're probably not big showy personalities who want to be out and in, in front of everyone. And they tend to be more introverted and more focused on... Their food speaks for them in, in a lot of cases. They're nervous and it's a way of putting up a little guard, a little protective armor or something. Well,
1: what so what do you have them do when they... <laughs> When that's their first natural pose, what are your defaults?
2: I'm definitely always interested in this in-between moments when they're not paying attention or I can get them to laugh or they get distracted by something. I feel like those are usually more revealing. They may or may not be more revealing, but they're certainly more interesting. Most people, when they are posing for a, photograph and there's someone standing in front of them with a camera to their face, you sort of freeze like a deer in the headlights. And so, you know, whatever expression they want to wear, whether they have a terrible smile or they have a scowl or but they're they freeze and whatever that is, which is usually not particularly interesting, or it only takes me five seconds to shoot that. And then if there's nothing else, then there's really nothing else. People who I would sort of liken more to models who that's their job. They sort of turn on because either they love to get their picture taken or they've just got these huge exuberant personalities or what have you. And that's easy, of course, because like they just go and go. But in general, real people don't sort of care to get their picture taken. And I find trying to get the little in-between moments is when something more real or endearing or, or natural comes out.
1: And having been someone whose picture has been taken, you don't feel comfortable because you figure that the photographer is looking at you and seeing everything you don't like about the way you look to yourself. So (laughs) you're hoping that maybe they'll miss some of your flaws, but not sure that they'll miss some of your flaws because there is that big camera. Most people who haven't had their picture taken professionally feel a little anxious, I think.
2: I hate having my picture taken. I absolutely hate being on that side of the camera. And, and I, I don't get my picture taken very often, but often enough that I keep in mind how most people feel when I'm on the other side of the camera and, and they're in that sort of awkward place.
1: When we come back from the break, Michael Piazza will explain why professional kitchens are ugly places to photograph.
0: This episode is brought to you by New York Mutual Trading, the premier Japanese food, alcoholic beverage, and restaurant supply specialist. Mutual Trading is the Japanese food authority, true to the heart in upholding genuine Japanese food traditions, and progressive in exploring new ways to provide innovative restaurant supplies and services. They import, export, distribute, and manufacture the top brands for retailer and food service customers nationwide. Learn more at nymtc.com.
1: And we are back with photographer Michael Piazza. When you're taking pictures of people cooking, how do you manage all of the chaos around it? And you're another element of the chaos. How do you get the frame so that it looks like a moment in time without being part of the story?
2: Well, there's probably a, a number of things going on, and I, some of it is out of my control. Kitchens are actually pretty ugly places to photograph for a whole bunch of reasons. but
1: Because everything is steel, like professional kitchens?
2: Yeah, it's, yeah, it is a lot of steel, and so there's a lot of strange reflections. There's usually two or three different kinds of light in them, so different colored lights. Fluorescent lights are very different colored than incandescent lights and etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's you know you can have green things and magenta things and yellow things and there's rarely natural light so you don't even have pretty light so it's kind of messy that way it's busy there's all kinds of stuff everywhere one thing that I like to do if I can get away with it I like to make those images black and white just because it takes away all of that stuff it's sort of Renders the ugliness of the light a little less ugly, and if there's that color of light thing which bothers me, and, or if there's weird yellow mops in the corner, things that are grabbing your attention, and you you want the viewer to be focused on the person who's cooking or what they're doing or what have you, so it's black and white is an easy way just to eliminate all of that. It's also very graphic. I I when I first started shooting, you know, when I was much younger in film and all that, I loved shooting black and white which is you had to really decide to put the black and white film in the camera. So there's that. And then I'll get away with controlling something as much as I can if I can tell someone to stop or do that again or do it half the speed that you're doing it at or you know something like that. And then when all else fails, you just take a million pictures and <laughs> um, hope that you get one that's really good.
1: With, is there a particular kind of food that you... I love your pictures, especially when you take like one ingredient, let's say it's an orange or it's a banana or it's whatever it is. And you just kind of, you create something that looks to me like it's straight out of an art history book. But what do you love to take pictures of?
2: I really get a kick out of shooting almost anything. Some things are more difficult to shoot than others. Meat is difficult to photograph in general because it's brown and doesn't have a whole lot of Color or other kind of life to it. And so it's always challenging to shoot meat, and raw meat is lovely and beautiful, but you know, in the back of your head, that it's probably a bit gross to people. So that's not always an option. It's just more difficult. I wouldn't say that it's, I I dislike it, you know, compared to shooting cookies or bananas or whatever. I like it all. I'd like to think that. Anything that I have to photograph or that I'm asked to photograph that I can't make it look lovely and make a lovely picture out of it, that's I feel like that's what my job is all about <laughs>
1: it, it is in fact, your job to make it look beautiful. but I was just curious you put a lot of attention on plated meals, and I wonder, are you very fussy when you plate food at home or when you are you always very conscious of how everything looks, even when you cook or when you eat?
2: I would say I am. I've always loved cooking and I've always loved eating.
1: Was that a family thing growing up?
2: Yeah, my dad cooked a lot. He didn't always cook a lot, but there was a point in my childhood where he just decided that that was something that he was curious about or was interested in. I think probably like a lot of households where it's an obligation for, you know, the wife to cook meals in that sort of traditional sort of way. And if a husband comes to it as a hobby, it's just psychologically a whole different thing. And so of course it's more fun, you know, if it's not this kind of, you know, the the daily drudgery or an obligation. And um, But he definitely got really interested in it and got good at it. At the time I was living in the Bay Area and like in the seventies and into the eighties when there was just so much stuff going on in Berkeley and Chez Panisse and you know, Kermit Lynch wine and, you know, Pete's coffee when Pete was Pete. And it was this little crazy shop around the corner from Chez Panisse and filled with giant canvas bags. And, you know, and I, so I, there was all this kind of, I think it was, I was pretty young. It, you know, I couldn't have really thought through that way, but being older now and being able to look back on all that a little more intellectually, there was a lot of great food stuff going on when I was a kid and my dad was getting really interested in all of it. So I did kind of grow up with food being a little bit more of a thing than maybe your average household. I don't know. I'm a California kid for sure.
1: And why not? (laughs) (laughs) What I'm really want to know is were you ever intimidated, you know, here you're invited in, they want you to take a picture of this famous chef or gorgeous food or whatever And you walk in, maybe only this happened early in your career, and you think, how am I going to do this?
2: I don't think that anymore. I know that I did, for sure. I guess I'm at a point where I've been doing it for so long that I'm fairly confident that I can figure out whatever it is I have to do, which is not to say that I always figure it out. But it's not enough to sort of that I live in sort of constant anxiety about, you know, God, am I going to be able to do this or not? And so I I, I really don't. I I mean, you know, I there's days where I think I took pictures that were really fabulous and days where I thought, man, I, I wish that would have turned out better, you know, for whatever reason. I guess maybe back to the chef thing a little bit. I, I, I really admire chefs and a lot of them are my friends. And to me, they're like sort of celebrities that I would sort of look up to or what have you, as opposed to pop singers or whatever other people sort of look up to, but I'm never intimidated by that. And I certainly rarely ever super deferential to them, you know, like that whole chef thing. Right. So like there's times when I'll say that if I don't know them particularly well, but if it's somebody that I know.
1: I mean, referring to them as chef, calling them chef, will you stand there? Ex- ex- exactly. Yeah yeah, 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 exactly.
2: I'll, I'll refer to them by their name because we're equals or what have you, um, as opposed to. Like you're meeting, like you're meeting the president or something. <laughs> it's when
1: I first started working in kitchens and everybody was calling this young kid chef. And I somehow, I thought that was just ridiculous and funny. And I kept sort of like making a joke out of it. And people looked at me to be clear that it was not a joke. And if I couldn't follow the line, I really didn't belong.
2: Well, yeah, there definitely is that hierarchy within a kitchen. And I, you know, it's, I I totally know what you're saying. I feel like it's a little bit different there. It's not like a kid has to refer to every elder as sir or something like that. Like we don't live in that world anymore. Within that structured world of a professional kitchen, the idea that this person's in charge and that even if there's like a certain openness or dialogue, or there's a lot of ideas coming from sous chefs or, or behind the scenes... Like when it's service time, it's hard to imagine a kitchen functioning all that well if there wasn't a degree of understanding what the hierarchy was and who was giving orders and who wasn't. And so it's all part and parcel of that. I I get it. I just, I don't do it. Maybe in a way, it's actually really not even so much that I don't want to be subservient to somebody. I'm not going to pretend that I'm part of that world because I'm not. You know, I'm there (laughs) eavesdropping on their world, but I'm not part of their little ship of pirates and and all that. So it would be pretentious of me to pretend like I was like one of them or whatever because I'm really not.
1: No, you're not, but you have the capacity to present them to the outside world in a way that no one else does. When you work with a different chef, you go into a different kitchen, you're working with different food, how do you get ready for the differences between them? Cuz you know it isn't one size fits all. Do you observe for a day or so or How do you sort of tune your eye for the particular tableau you're going to be capturing?
2: You know, it's probably a lot of thinking fast on your feet or being perceptive of things quickly. There's probably an element of it that would be awkward for your average person, which is that you, you just walk right into a situation and you have to say, we're going to work together as if we've known each other all our lives and we're not going to feel each other out or take the time to know each other and we'll go on a couple of dates. And there's none of that, right? You're right into it. If it's somebody I don't know, or I'm meeting them for the first time, I'll probably kind of have my little feelers up to try to gauge their ego. If they're the kind of person where I do need to be a little deferential to them, or it's going to be just kind of a lot of wasted energy, I'll sort of, I'll push for what I want in subtle ways, but I probably won't be quite as out front with them. But if I feel like, You know, we can be in a little bit more of a partnership, or something a bit more cooperative. Or they they look to me to sort of steer the ship a little bit in terms of how does this picture get made because that's sort of my job. Then I'll maybe sort of drive the whole thing a little bit more, be you know a little more forward about the whole thing. But again, it all happens very fast because I have to kind of just figure out where everybody's at, if they're distracted or nervous. So how can I get them into a place where they're a little more comfortable doing the work that we need to do together. If it's somebody I know, somebody that I've worked with a lot, that's all been worked out you know, yeah. over you know days and days and days. I
1: know that there are people you know, but I also know that you get hired to do somebody's cookbook and you they don't know you. They've picked you out from your portfolio. You're starting from day one and you're going to be essentially even more than the recipes in that cookbook, even more than the, the chef notes, your photos are going to be the thing that makes it fly off the shelves. So they're putting a lot of trust in you.
2: Oh for sure. For sure. And it probably helps motivate me to, you know, make sure that I'm constantly trying to do the best that I can. It can be complex, you know, there's there can be a lot of voices there. The people who are writing the cookbook, the publisher, agents, designers, there's, there's a lot of people involved. And so it's kind of, I guess, maybe that thing that I was just saying about trying to gauge chefs and their egos and their personalities and all that. It's, it's that as well, but with, you know, add another two or three layers into it and try to get everything in a place where you can take the best pictures that everybody is going to love and be happy with
1: people have the misconception and i think it's a misconception that you're using a lot of tricks a lot of food stylist tricks <laughs> when you actually take the picture it's my experience that people don't do that anymore they take the food and they've learned how to manipulate the- it's- yeah it's
2: it's <laughs> funny my daughters who are you know 11 and 13 they'll come across some little you know factoid you know off the internet in their little sort of world wherever they get things and la papa do you know that ice cream is just mashed potatoes when they take pictures of it and they'll tell me sort of what goes on in food photography and i don't do any of that just none of it it's all real i mean there are little tips and tricks but not things that are like substituting one one thing for another mashed thing potatoes for ice cream <laughs> mashed potatoes for ice cream no there's none i think that changed probably starting in the 90s. And I'm probably not the the greatest sort of historian of all these things. But in my mind, Martha Stewart kind of changed all that. And some of the photographers that worked for her early on, like Victoria Pearson, and because that, that was the brand that she created. Natural food, natural light, authenticity, that's like a terrible word now. I think that the landscape has changed for sure. I just don't really do a lot of stuff where I might sort of bump into that, like really big commercial food photography for giant corporations. Like I don't, I don't really deal in that world all that much. So maybe they're maybe French fries are made out of you know styrofoam or something. But I, I'm just, I haven't been exposed to that.
1: We are all in the world of digital photography overload, and everybody's a photographer, everybody's, everybody's a journalist, everybody's almost a doctor, as far as I can see. Everybody from the internet, because I can learn anything on YouTube, figures that they can do anything. If you were going to speak to all of those people who are always sending me pictures of their lunch or their dinner or their meal, one or two pieces of, of advice on how to make it look better. How far away should they be from the food? How should they use their flash? What?
2: <laughs> well, if they're not practicing photographers who have a lot of either experience in school or outside of school using artificial light, my first bit of advice is always to av- avoid using artificial light. Until you master natural light and can understand how and why natural light when natural light makes for a beautiful picture don't get involved in trying to figure out how to make artificial light be that way the simplest thing is to get close to a window and the closer to the window you can get the better the prettier the light will be as a general rule indirect soft light is much sort of prettier and foolproof than direct light you know where sun's you know coming you know hitting your your set or your food directly if you just do that alone your pictures will improve a ton i I mean god these cameras now that are in everybody's phone are probably better than half the cameras i owned when i was younger it really is just about light go to that light and arrange everything in that pretty light i sometimes tell people in in the workshops because they'll sort of be frustrated that they can't take a picture you know there's there's not pretty light where the tables are what have you i say i your job is to go find the pretty natural light there if if, if it's the back door to the kitchen then it's the back door of the kitchen if it's a window and a broom closet it's a window and a broom closet you bring the world to that light don't somehow wonder how good light is going to find your world you bring your world to the light (laughs)
1: Carry your sp- spaghetti to the broom closet. I love it. That's it. it. <laughs> thank you, Mike. This is great.
2: I haven't talked that much about <laughs> myself and my photography. and I'm a listener of podcasts. It's, it's like being on the wrong side of the camera.
1: <laughs> this is great. You know, I'm such a fan of your work. And I think people, once they start knowing your name, they'll start seeing the byline and thinking, I knew that guy. <laughs>
2: thank, well, thank you, you Louise. I appreciate it.
1: it. This is fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss, of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio is supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you.